Good morning. How are you doing this morning? Isn't it a great time of worship? Wow. I love being here. It's a joy to me each time. Um, sometimes I, I have trouble uh, maybe explaining to you what, what it is that I really want to accomplish each time that I stand before you. And as I've been studying through the book of Hebrews, some things have become very apparent to me, and and I've kind of thought about it like this. Um, Have you ever seen a mom bundling up a child to go outside in the cold? Have y'all ever seen that? How many of you remember it? How many of you remember so many layers that by the time you got ready to go out the door, you were kind of like this? And you walked out like this because you had all these layers on because your mom was afraid that something outside that cold was going to get you. So you had on the mittens and you had on the, the, the head scarf and you had on the neck scarf and you had on the hood and you had on the, the, the underlayers and the jacket and everything. And you went out there because your mom was layering you. Because she knew what you were about to face better than you did. That's what's going on with the writer to the Hebrews. He is layering truth and love on his flock. Because they're going to face something that they do not fully yet know how Hard and harsh it will be. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, the unction of the Holy Spirit, this writer is just layering upon them layer after layer of love and truth and warning in such a way as to prepare them to step out into a reality that God only knows what it is. That's what I try to do every time we gather. I have this sense of responsibility like a mom with children wanting to protect you, wanting to envelop you in truth and in love. And so layer after layer, we lay truth and love upon you in hopes that as you go out into God only knows what you're going to face today, tomorrow, this year, this decade, this lifetime that you would be so enveloped in truth and the love of Christ that there would be defenses built in from the cold reality of Satan's schemes and designs. When we come into this section of the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, it's a transitional section and it's mega, 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 as I've said before, important that we understand the nature of of the message that he's laying out, each section of the book building upon the other. And so this morning, as you bring that up for us, Robin, the, uh, the, the whole point is found in a particular word. So let's go to number one. The key word is fitting. Now let's go down and look at this and then explain what's behind it. This word is a transitional and explanatory word. That means it's moving from one idea to another 
and it is explaining the reason behind the next idea that's being presented. The idea that's been presented to us before is that Jesus is worthy to be worshipped because of who He is. He is God. And the primary thing that has happened in the first section of Hebrews is to magnify Jesus for who He is. To make very crystal clear how far exalted He is above angels. That He is the image of the invisible God. That He is God Himself in human skin. And so there's this transitional section because now he's going to shift from talking about this exalted Christ to the humble Christ who lived as a human who experienced suffering and death. Join me for a moment and let me just lay some words out. In verse 9, it says, because of the suffering of death, And it says that he might taste death. Very important. Verse 10, perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. Verse 14, through death. Verse 18, he has suffered. There's this idea going on that this exalted, glorious God is now a humiliated, suffering Human suffering not just to a point, but to the extreme of death. And so the word that comes to us now is that this is fitting. Now, fitting was an important word in this time. It meant that some outward action or appearance matched the mission and character of the person. Some outward noticeable trait matched what the job description of the person was. It means to be seemly or suitable. And it says that this suffering, dying Savior is fitting. There's a reason that this issue is brought up. Fitting is the idea that what is outward matches what is inward. It's the reason beekeepers don't wear bikinis. Right? If you have a job description as a beekeeper, you have an outfit that matches it, right? It's not a bikini. It's not a Speedo. It it gives protection. So if a guy shows up and he says he's the beekeeper, he's wearing a Speedo, you can go, "Mm, probably not. Okay? The idea here is that the outfitting matches the task. One of my favorite lines in a movie is from the movie Madagascar. Do you all remember that movie? The cartoon? 
Did many of y'all see that? Let me see hands from Madagascar. Okay, so a lot of folks saw Madagascar. And one of my favorite characters, who Trey Garza can do perfectly, and Trey, I'm not calling on you, but you are the man in doing King Julian. King Julian is one of my favorite characters. And there's this point after they've observed these, these animals that have come from New York, and they've called them the New York Giants. There's this moment that King Julian says, they're not giants, they're just a bunch of pansies. There's this great moment when they just aren't fitting this job description of people who are going to help them and save them and deliver them from these mean uh, varmints that come and get them. And so there's this moment. There's also a moment in the movie Captain America where he's kind of being a show guy and he's now in front of the colonel and he and the colonel have this interchange and the, the colonel says, I asked for an army, I got you, and you are not enough. This is just in that moment of transition in the movie where Captain America actually goes and brings about this rescue of those men who had been captured. But he says, I asked for an army, I got you, you're not enough. Now, what's happening here is that there is a mix-up on what kind of Savior they need. So let's transition into point number two, the reason behind the key word. Something's going on. And if we don't understand what is going on, we're going to have trouble. In our culture, the underdog weakling is frequently an idea in media as a hero. But not so in the anticipatory culture of the Hebrews and in the prideful, exalted culture of the Greeks. Weakness was scorned by the Greeks. And the Hebrews were anticipating a militaristic deliverance. So when we're reading the book of Hebrews, we're reading about people who are primarily of Hebrew origin, they're Jewish, living in a dominant Greek culture, where the general Jewish belief is a military Messiah who will deliver us from this culture, and the general Greek idea is that weakness is the most scorned thing. This situation was bad for the believers. They were catching it on both fronts. The Jews were making fun of a crucified Messiah who was not a military leader and who did not deliver them from Rome and Greek influence. And the Romans were making fun of him because this was a weak guy that they killed. They crucified. And so when we get to this situation, the issue at hand, and this is the paramount reason for the word fitting, is that there was a confusion over the kind of salvation that was needed. This is Satan's constant lie. Please catch th this part. Satan's lie is that you have greater need to be delivered from what is outside of you than what is inside of you. That is the devil's deception. And if you think that your need for deliverance is greater on the outside than on the inside, 
then that's going to determine the kind of Savior that you're hoping for. This is why the prosperity gospel is so appealing. It's appealing because the prosperity gospel wants to deal with your external conditions rather than your internal need. That's why it's so heretical. And this is the warp of Satan to make you think that what you need is deliverance from something that surrounds you rather than something that inhabits you. And so that's why there's a confusion here. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews is clarifying, saying, the kind of Savior that Jesus is, is fitting. He might look to you like a beekeeper with a bikini, that it's not fitting. But once you understand what He really is and why He did what He did, all of a sudden, you're going to understand why He did what He did. G.K. Chesterton. How many of you have heard of him? Not a many. Usually it's a student who's heard of G.K. Chesterton. He is worth reading. Many of his works are free on Amazon Kindle. So if you want to write this name down and go and read him, you'll be enriched. He was a brilliant thinker, and during his lifetime, he was asked by some editors to join a group of people who answered in the local newspaper, where he wrote occasionally, to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And so they gathered these theologians, they gathered these thinkers, and they send them all a letter and says, we want you to be a contributor to our series, What is Wrong with the World? And you write a letter and, and, and we'll post it. So G.K. Chesterton wrote a letter, and this is what he wrote. Concerning the question, what is wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton's letter reads, and I quote, Dear sirs, I am... Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What was he saying? He was saying the thing that's wrong with the world is me. It's inside here. It's not outside of me. It's inside of me. This morning, a really funny thing happened as I was getting ready to come to church. On Sunday mornings, if I don't get to it late on Saturday night, on Sunday mornings, I, uh, I get up and I get up fairly early, uh, have some coffee. That's just the first thing I do. Uh, how many of you have coffee first thing? Is that? Yeah. Okay. Universal. All right. Except David Garza. Okay. He doesn't drink coffee. All right. But he is saved. I've talked to him about it. Okay. Just in case that put any doubt there, okay? It's like when I meet a preacher that doesn't like chicken, I just have to ask him some pretty pertinent questions. Okay, here's, here's what's happening. I get up on, on Sunday morning, and what I do is I, I like to vacuum and sweep the kitchen and the dining room, and I like to mop the kitchen because we have company almost every Sunday, and I don't like folks to come in and see if the floor is not clean. So something that I love to do for my wife, she is so sweet to me in a zillion ways. In fact, I needed tissue, and she just went and got me some so I could blow my nose a minute ago. She is just a jewel. This is one of the things I love to do for her. And so on Sunday morning, that's one of the things that I'll do if I don't get it late Saturday night. So this morning, I, I got in there and, and kind of cleaned it all up and got 
ready to mop it and went ahead and got dressed and put these shoes on. And I started mopping and cleaning and I came back and I said, something is going on. Who is walking around in this kitchen? I was getting irritated and Cliff has been staying with us. So I thought Cliff must have got up and just drugged stuff all in here. So I got the broom and a dustpan and I got it all back up and I turned around and looked back and it was still there. And I started going, something is weirding out. And so I kept on cleaning up, and as soon as I turned around, I'd have to clean up again. Do you know what I found out? If you will look right here on the stage, my shoes are falling apart. You see that black on my finger? That is coming out of a cracked place on my heel. Don't go and buy me some shoes. That, that's not my point here. But this stuff is falling out the back of my shoes. Do you know who the mess was? It was me! I wanted to blame somebody else. I wanted to say it's Laney or Laurel or Sherry or Cliff. And the truth is my shoes are falling apart and this black stuff is coming out. Tom, I am sorry, but I went ahead and warmed to make this point. Okay. And so, and so here's the deal. The mess in my life is not outside of me. It is coming from me. And the need in my life is for my heart to be changed. And so why is the writer to the Hebrews being so specific? Because he's turning from this glorious God enthroned Christ the King and saying, this is why this guy, it is fitting that he was humbled. Two things, the reason behind the key word. Number one, letter A. Go ahead, Robin, thank you. The expectation of Jews and Greeks. The expectations of a Messianic figure in Greek and Hebrew culture was an issue. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 1.22, For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. The idea of a Messiah in Jewish culture was a deliverer who came and set the people free through defeating the enemies of God, not one who was defeated spectacularly by crucifixion. So the expectation first in the Jewish culture is a national deliverer who delivers us from what is outside of us. But if we go back and read Hebrew history, the reason there was a dominator every single time in Hebrew history is because there was sin in the hearts of the people. And outside domination always reflected inside sinfulness. So God always called them to repentance and forgiveness before there was deliverance. And so the Scripture tells us that God has a kind of Savior, but the culture around them and the oppression they suffered from Rome made them look for an external deliverer rather than an internal Savior. The same problem existed in Greek culture. In Greek culture, because of the pride, the hubris in their culture, they wanted one who was physically strong as a warrior and tactically wise as a leader. Jesus' suffering was not appealing to either. The idea of a suffering, dying, weak, embarrassed, stripped, naked Savior was considered an embarrassment to both Greeks and Jews. And so there was, in this letter, 
said it was fitting for this kind of Savior. Now, I want to make sure that you understand the word fitting and where it comes from and see how it was used before. In Matthew 3.13, the Bible says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. You see, even John was tainted by the Messianic culture. Let me remind you about John. When Jesus came to John and wanted to be baptized, and John said, oh, no, 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 you need to baptize me. He said, no, no, no. It is fitting that I be submissive. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so Jesus is baptized. The Spirit descends like a dove upon Him. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John sees all that. But when John is arrested and thrown in prison and waiting to be beheaded, John's cultural theology catches up with him and he sends a message to Jesus and he says, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? Jesus was a weak, in the world's view, non-warlike in the world's view, kind of atypical Savior. So much so that John, even with the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the voice of God, John himself doubted that Jesus was the kind of Messiah that was needed. And so if a man that godly, that in tune with the Holy Spirit, that profoundly, miraculously revealed to, can go through a season of doubt, what about you? What about me? So the writer to the Hebrews in this season of doubt in these congregations, he's writing to them to say it's fitting. Even Peter, when Jesus told him how the crucifixion was going to go down, Peter took him aside and said, let me explain something to you. That ain't fitting. He didn't use the word, but that's what he meant. This whole crucifixion, dying, chief priests, elders, scribes, rejecting thing, that is not going to work out. What did Jesus say to Peter? Famous words, what did he say? Get behind me, Satan. Why did he say that? Because what is Satan always doing? He's trying to deceive you about the kind of Savior you need. He wants you to think that you need saving from outside things when what you need saving from is inside things. Now, let me mention one other thing. The exclusivity of Jews and Greeks. Let's look at the text here. We see in verse 9, we do see Him who's been made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. Notice this word, the exclusivity of Jews and Greeks. Culturally, everybody thinks they're somehow superior. That's just how it is. 
When we watch the news, we see people we think we're better than. When we read the magazines, we see people we think we're better than. The idea that this salvation spans every culture, every race, every socioeconomic group, every type of sin is offensive to us. The Jews thought the salvation would be exclusively for them. Greeks who got saved thought it would be the salvation for the lower classes to be delivered from the domination of the upper classes. The Greeks who thought in the upper classes they could be saved, it was because of their standing in the upper class. And there's always this tension between people who have a sense of exclusivity. But what does he say here? He takes death for everyone. Every tongue, tribe, nation, anyone, anywhere who's done anything, the power of the gospel can deliver him or her from their sin. And this is offensive. Now let's move quickly and I'll summarize four ways Jesus was fitting that the text brings out. So here is Jesus suffering, dying, tasting death all across cultures, all across races, all across socioeconomic groups, tasting death, all kinds of sin in sinners. He's tasting death for them because this is the kind of Savior we need. So let's look four ways Jesus is fitting. Number one, suffering, sanctifying, solidarity with humanity. Look In verse 11. It's a great verse. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are all from one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now let me start with the word sanctifying and matching it with the word ashamed. The way that Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother, and we're going to tell why that term brother is important, so hang with me. The reason Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother is because of what work He has done in you. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, He did a sanctifying I mean, to make us holy. He did a sanctifying work in you, clothing you in His righteousness, so He has no shame in calling you His brother. This is a glorious statement of His sanctifying acceptance. How did He do that? Through the suffering of death. That is why this is all brought together here. Perfect the author of their salvation through suffering for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. So here, the sanctifying work is that Jesus does something to you on the inside that makes him unashamed to accept you into his family as a co-heir of one father because of what he has done in your heart. That means there's a day coming have you, have you ever embarrassed yourself? You ever done that? I can't even tell you of some of the things I've done to embarrass myself, and they're really bad. Have you ever 
been embarrassed so much that you thought that the people around you by your embarrassment might distance themselves from you? Has that ever actually happened? It's happened to me. It's happened to friends of mine. I remember a dear friend of mine who got caught in a very, very bad situation. And so much so that everyone abandoned him. And I remember visiting him in jail and him having the sense that everyone had abandoned and wondered why I would come by based on the level of his embarrassment and what he had done. Jesus has a love for you so much so that when God unzips your soul in eternity and just opens up the shirt of who you really are when you stand before Him with no defense and everything about you is finally known, Jesus will stand beside you unashamed. He will call you brother. Co-heir with Him. Though everyone else may turn when they know what you're really like because of what Jesus has done, He won't. This is a glorious statement. He goes on to flesh this out with two messianic places in the Old Testament. I will proclaim thy name to the brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. That comes out of Psalm 22. One of the most explicitly messianic psalms is here. He's calling the people around him that he's proclaiming himself to. The brethren, the congregation, the brothers. Now, brother is important in this idea and why it is used in that gender is important. Because in that time, females could not inherit. So those of you who are ladies and you got called brother in this verse, it means that you get the status as an inheritor. You're not left out because you're a lady. You hold the same status as a male heir in the family of God. That's glorious. Okay, I don't have time to flesh out where I really want to go. I'm going to do that tonight. I do have time to bring you three more things quickly. Okay, letter B. What else made him fitting? Through death he defeated the devil. One of the writers, George Guthrie, says, since death was the prescription for victory in this case. Remember, the wages of sin is? So the remedy for sin is? Death but not yours. Do you realize why hell is eternal? Because the level of debt you have incurred against a holy God cannot be saved by a billion years of you burning in hell. The debt level you have acquired is unpayable because you do not have an innocent sinlessness and personal righteousness with which to pay the debt. So that's why hell has to be eternal because it can't be paid off. But Jesus steps in, and through death He defeated the devil. Read with me, verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. So here's what Guthrie says. Since death was the prescription for victory in this case, the only way the Son could accomplish the needed task was to die. And the only way to die was to become human. This is, for our author, the logic of the incarnation. So here is the remedy. The remedy is death. Jesus as exalted God, second person of the Trinity, He can't die! So what does He do? 
the incarnation enables Him to do the one thing that can deliver you. The incarnation puts Him in a genuine human experience where He now can die. Since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. Put your fingers on this verse. It's great. Through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death. That is the devil. How many of you remember the old Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the great enemy in that show was the Abominable Snowman? You remember that? And the Abominable Snowman captures this one Yukon guy and later on he shows back up and Yukon Jack, I think is his name, he's got the Abominable Snowman in tow and everybody goes, ah! And then the Abominable Snowman opens his mouth and what is he? He's toothless! All his power is gone. He's still there, but his power's gone. There was a father driving with his daughter in a car. And as they were driving along, a wasp flew in the car and began to buzz about his daughter who was sitting beside him. And the wasp is buzzing and they're doing all they can. And finally the father reaches out and he grabs the wasp. And then a moment later, the wasp flies off. And the little girl goes, Daddy, I can't believe that you had him. You, you could have done something with him. And then the father holds his hand over to the little girl and says, Look right here. What is that? She said, I don't know, Daddy. What is it? He said, It's the stinger. He can harass you now, but he can't sting you. When Jesus went to the cross, He took the stinger out of Satan's power. And Satan can harass now any believer. But the sting of death is gone. Satan's power is broken. He who had the power of death no longer possesses it. Let her see, through death he delivered the defendants. Because of this act, look at what it says. Verse 15, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We labor trying to avoid death. We do all that we can trying to stay away from it. We fear it. It envelops us only through Jesus are we truly able to no longer fear death. He delivers the descendants of Abraham, those who are children of the promise. The father and a daughter were driving. He was a minister and his wife had died. And they were really laboring with their intense pain over the death. And the daughter was sobbing. And as they were driving along, it was a bright sunlit day and the sun was still hanging on the horizon. And suddenly, this giant truck comes at them and, and swooshes by them. And as the truck swooshes by them, it blocks the sunlight and shadows fall in the car for just a moment. And the father understands something. He turns to his daughter and he said to his daughter, he said, you know that truck that just passed us? She said, yes, daddy. He said, let me ask you a question. Would you be ra rather be ran over by that truck or its shadow? She said, oh, Dad, you know. I would rather be ran over by its shadow, he said. Because of what Jesus has done, Mom has only been touched by the shadow of death, 
not death itself. The power of death is gone. And my dear, we do not have to fear because she is now with the Lord Jesus because they have understood Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. See, through death, Jesus has delivered the descendants from their fears. And let's close with this glorious truth here. Letter D. Because of His suffering and temptation, He is able to aid those who are tempted in their own suffering. Several years ago, when I was a kid, a show came out called Emergency. And that was a pretty cool show. My kids love it. We've probably watched every rerun of Emergency two or three times over and over. But one of the neatest and most insightful things about the show Emergency was the transition that was happening when that show came out that was actually the real backstory for the show. Prior to the kind of things that were happening in that show, ambulance drivers could offer no aid to people who were injured. In fact, they became known as meat wagon drivers because all they could do was put the body in and transport. They had no medical training. And so they simply took the injured person, put them in, and hoped that they could get them somewhere fast enough for real aid to be given. And so the show tells the story of how the first paramedics were actually trained and given medical training where they could do things like start IVs and use that shock mechanism on people who had heart attacks and actually give shots to people who have had heart attacks to, to, to bust the clot. And all of these things were going on. And so they were receiving the training so that the person who came to you wasn't just a transporter. They were actually people who could render aid to you. Remember the four people who carried the man to Jesus? They couldn't give any aid, could they? All they could do was transport their patient to Jesus. But I want you to look at what this verse says. Verse 18, For since he himself was tempted, that's part of the necessity of his humanity. In the things in which he has suffered, He is able, read this, to come to the aid. Do you know when you dial the divine 911, you don't get a transporter. You get the physician. You actually get Jesus when you need help. Read it. He is able to come to the aid. This is Jesus. It's not a transporter. It's not somebody just to tote you somewhere while you bear it. When you bow your knee as a follower of our God, Savior, and King Jesus Christ, it is He Himself 
through the intercessory work of His high priesthood who dispatches from God the Father the very aid that you personally, intimately, urgently need when you call on His name. One of the things that the writer to the Hebrews is driving home to you is that Jesus is identifying with your suffering no matter what it is. He's doing it in such a way that He is sympathetic to it. And He is ministering in such a way that when you call on Jesus, you get Jesus to come to your aid. Personally, providentially, powerfully coming to your aid. Would you bow with me?